The History Channel original podcast. History This Week, March 12th, 1888. I'm Sally Helm. New York City commuters wake up this morning to a once-in-a-generation blizzard. The wind will reach 85 miles per hour, and it's flinging ice through the air. People say the snow is like bullets or like carpet tacks flying at you. One person describes seeing passers-by with their faces literally bloodied by flying ice. It's hard to even walk across the street. A group of men finds themselves together in a clump on 86th Street, trying to move forward, but they're blown back again and again by the wind. They finally get into a single-file line so that they can physically drag each other to the opposite curb. If you want to get around by horse cart instead, good luck. They've been abandoned left and right on New York City streets. So a lot of people head for the elevated trains. These are normally quite reliable. But today, the tracks are so icy and the visibility is so bad that it takes hours for the trains to go just a few blocks. There's a fatal crash on the 3rd Avenue line. On the 6th Avenue line, a train gets stuck on the track for hours. And finally, all the trains are canceled. Historian Mary Cable describes what happened to one man who was waiting on a 6th Avenue platform for a train that never came. He decides to walk instead, below the tracks where the snow isn't quite so deep. As he goes, he feels something falling onto his hat and realizes that it's sparrows, frozen solid, falling from their perches on the girders of the elevated train. He makes it one avenue, and then he's lifted up by the 50-mile-per-hour wind. He bangs his head on the train trestle, drops his watch, and falls into a snowbank. The next morning a policeman sees a hand sticking out of the snow. It's that unfortunate commuter, now a casualty of the storm. More specifically, he is a casualty of all the problems on the elevated trains. In the coming days, New York City digs itself out from beneath 21 inches of snow to find that 400 people have been killed and that many of the losses could have been prevented if the transportation network had kept running, despite the storm. And so, the Great Blizzard of 1888 gives new life to a plan that had been percolating for years. A plan to take the city's trains and put them underground. Today, the story of the New York City subway. How did an epic snowstorm drive the city to try a new, dangerous, daring idea? And why was the subway such a unique invention from the very start? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The city of New York is many things. A city of Broadway, of bankers, of bagels. But to Conchetta Benzavenga, it is a city of transit. You experience New York the way you do because of mass transit, you just don't know it. You've been through a, a, a tunnel, you've been over a bridge, you've been on a bus, you've been on a commuter rail, and certainly you've been on the iconic subway. Benzavenga directs the New York City Transit Museum, which is housed in a converted subway station in Brooklyn. It's very, very hard to talk about New York without talking about the subway. And then actually, that's really why I love my job so much. And I say to pretty much anybody that I encounter, why our museum is so awesome. Not that I'm biased, but I totally am. She says the subway predated many of the neighborhoods around it. In many ways, it designed the map of the city. So what was the city like before the subway in the 1800s? When you ask a question about, like, take me back to New York in the 1800s, you have to really be very specific about what you mean when you say the city. Places like Brooklyn and Queens were separate cities, and they were mostly farmland. The island of Manhattan was way more sparsely populated than it is today, but it was pretty dense below 34th Street, on about a third of the available land. If you can imagine, it is human and horse gridlock. Shoppers, street vendors, commuters, and horses. We tell a story here at the Transit Museum that one day a guy stood at an intersection in Lower Manhattan and counted 8,000 horses in a day. 8,000 horses in one day. By 1880, there were an estimated 150,000 horses on the streets of New York City. Meaning that beneath the feet of those shoppers and street vendors and commuters is a lot of horse waste. In fact, there's a cottage industry that springs up in offloading that manure to New Jersey to help make the Garden State a little bit more gardeny. All this human and horse traffic makes it hard to get around. And so the city decides we need to grow our mass transit. They try stagecoaches, a handful of people pulled by horses. Then they try the horse omnibus, like a slightly bigger stagecoach that runs on a set route. Then horse railways, horses pulling omnibus-type things along a set of rails. But none of these are totally solving the traffic problem. And the stakes are high. People worry that the city will become so choked and congested that businessmen will just take their business elsewhere, to Philadelphia or Baltimore, and New York will kind of wither on the vine. The street-level traffic innovations have not worked, though. And so? You only have two choices. You could go up, or you could go down. You have to remember, for all of humankind, up until this point in time, right, 1860s, 1870s, you go down underneath the earth for exactly two reasons. You go down to get something and come back up. You're mining, you're, you're going down to extract a natural resource, so you go down, you get it, and you come back up. Or you go down because you're dead, right, and you're buried. And so the notion that we sort of take completely for granted that somebody would go underneath the earth to travel around is a completely foreign concept. Those 1860s New Yorkers say, no early grave for us. Instead, elevated rail lines go up all over Manhattan. And if they go up on your block, it's not an entirely good thing. The streets that had elevated trains were 
Well, that was kind of a mixed blessing. You had transport, but, but at a price. John Morris is the author of a recent book about the New York City subway. He told us these elevated trains were running on steam power, meaning you had to burn coal to power the engine. They were enormously noisy. The locomotives were spitting out smoke and soot and dripping lubricants and things. And they weren't even that fast. They only averaged something like seven or eight miles an hour over the course of their full lines. But there's someone in New York who is walking around, navigating dripping train lubricants and piles of manure, nursing a vision for something better. A man named Alfred Ely Beach who was sort of an entrepreneur. He owned and ran Scientific American magazine, and he was sort of a Silicon Valley type of his day. He was a proselytizer for every form of technology. Beach was a hard worker. He apparently never took a vacation. And he was a prolific inventor. He came up with an early version of the typewriter before he was 21, then invented a new version that could be used by the blind. And he gets fascinated by the idea of putting the trains underground. But it would be pretty hard to put one of those steam-belching, coal-powered trains underground. London sort of tries it in 1863. They do a partly covered steam train, which is a step towards a subway, though it's still pretty far from what it'll ultimately become. But Beach worries that if you really put a steam train underground, there could be fires, explosions, horrible pollution, And so he has a different idea. Pneumatic tubes. Just imagine a huge, which is what it is, it's a huge fan that is just basically pushing and sucking this train car kind of down this tube. It would be clean, it would be fast, it would be beautiful. Beach loves it. But he has a powerful adversary in New York City. The entire sort of apparatus of New York City at at this time is being controlled by Boss Tweed and Tammy Hall. William M. Tweed, or Boss Tweed, is a corrupt, highly powerful politician who basically runs New York City through a political organization known as Tammany Hall. And he has financial interests in some of the current railroads and trolleys. So he had no interest in authorizing other people to build a subway or any other kind of public transportation. He even threatened the first elevated line. Apparently, at one point, threatened to send a mob to to destroy it. But Alfred Beach is a true believer in the underground pneumatic tube train. And so, God love his heart, he goes to Tammany Hall, and he's like, you know, this is my great idea. It's going to be great for the city of New York. And, you know, Boss Tweed is like, well, it is not going to be great for me, so no thank you. But Beach comes up with a sneaky workaround. He says, well, you know, there's this pneumatic tube technology, and um, we could do it for the mail. Just send the letters through the tubes. His pitch is that he's going to alleviate some of the street congestion by taking the mail and putting it underground. Boss Tweed lets this one go. He's not focused on the postal service. And Beach uses this opportunity to secretly build his train. You know, in 58 days, in cover of darkness, he creates this pneumatic tube subway system. The first line is only 300 feet long. It runs beneath Broadway. It opens in February 1870. And the New York Times reports that people go down into the tunnel expecting a dismal, cavernous retreat. But they find something quite different. He makes it sort of an experience. It's really kind of like 
the hot thing to do. And he makes it very elegant. There's lovely couches, there's chandeliers, there's like a fish pond in there, there's somebody playing piano. A lot of visitors come to see it in its first week. And according to that New York Times reporter, it must be said that every one of them came away surprised and gratified. In the coming year, 400,000 New Yorkers show up to try it. The pneumatic train is a hit. Ben Savenka says, this is the biggest impact of Beach's train. It destigmatizes this notion of going underground. But there are still issues. The pneumatic tube wasn't practical for longer distances. The political forces are still arrayed against it. And the elevated train is cheaper. So that's the idea that prevails for now. Eventually, one New York City mayor, Abram Hewitt, does get behind the idea of an underground train. Hewitt came from a humble background. He claims to be one of the last American politicians who was literally born in a log cabin. But he ends up making a pile of money in the iron business. We talked about him with historian Clifton Hood. A thing to do in the 19th century for wealthy merchants like this was that when you had made your pile, you retired. And what genteel people did was devote themselves to public service. Hewitt thinks a subway will help with traffic. And he also just wants to make sure that New York is keeping up. He wants to have it equal London if possible, but certainly stay ahead of upstarts like Chicago. Hewitt proposes an idea to fund the subway. It's unorthodox for the time. Back then, private companies were mostly funding infrastructure. But he asks, what if they split the bill with the government, a public-private partnership? I would say basically it was just ignored. Until... Six weeks later. The blizzard brought the city to a halt. Um, You know, people couldn't get food because they couldn't get out to the store and the store couldn't get any provisions. Electric lines came down. The elevated trains just, you know, switches iced up. Tracks became covered in snow. As a passenger, you don't want to stand on a platform up in the air for an elevated train in a blizzard. After the snow melted, they discovered bodies that were frozen in the street. And you'd wonder, why would people go out in these conditions? And the answer in some cases was that there were few labor unions. People were worried about losing their jobs. And so they walked to work and died in doing it. It was a very, very traumatic event for New York City. In the blizzard's aftermath, cleaning up power lines, getting the trains running again, New York City sees that the future is underground. The New York Tribune writes that week, the ill wind of Monday blew into the consciences of New Yorkers a realization of the paramount necessity of supplying themselves with an underground railway service. What this did was put this on the agenda. It did not ensure that it was the top of the agenda, But what it did ensure was that this wasn't the last page that somebody was going to rip up and throw in the wastebasket. Mayor Hewitt only serves one term and isn't able to pull all the pieces together in time. And the next person to pick up the mantle is William Steinway. He is one of the sons in Steinway & Sons, the renowned piano makers. He wants to build a piano factory in Queens. And he wants an underground train to get his workers out there. He ignores the Hewitt plan, that private-public partnership, and decides to raise the money himself. He opens the bidding process for a lease to build and operate the line, one that would last 
999 years. And they got one bid for $1,000. And, you know, no one even thought that person was seriously capable of carrying out the plan. So at that point, the subway was kind of, you know, stopped in its tracks yet again. The bidding approach is set aside. But a few years later, the New York Chamber of Commerce picks things up again. They go with Hewitt's plan, the public-private partnership, and manage to push it through the political machinery. The Rapid Transit Act of 1894 sets the money aside for a subway. Now, who is actually going to build it? First, a building contractor is brought on, John McDonald. He oversaw the construction of a major tunnel in Baltimore in 1880. This is actually quite a big deal for an Irish immigrant to be in charge of this tunnel. And so what happens is that he catches the eye of Tammany. Boss Tweed had died years earlier, but Tammany Hall is still running things. And so Tammany's like, who's that guy? That's a nice Irish lad. And so let's keep tabs on him. They push McDonald to submit a bid. He wins the contract. The money comes from August Belmont Jr., His family made their fortune in banking, but became famous for horse racing. They bred horses, they bred dogs, and they viewed themselves as fine pedigree stock, much like their horses and dogs, many, many cuts above the rest of us who were presumably mutts. August Jr. went to Harvard, became president of his father's bank, owned seven houses. He was convinced that public transportation like the subway would be a good investment. And and he was right. Finally, they need an engineer, someone who understands the science of building this thing. And that person is the man who would have built Steinway's tunnel between Manhattan and Queens, a guy named William Barclay Parsons. His classmates, they kind of nicknamed him like the Reverend Parsons because he's very stern, right? He's not like the life of the party or whatever. But that notwithstanding, he has two degrees. His degrees are, and again, I'm not making this up, in mining and engineering. So if you got to get a guy to to build the subway, why wouldn't you get somebody who uh, goes to the Columbia School of Mines and walks out with a degree in engineering? Like, it's, it's perfect. All the pieces are in place. And on March 24th, 1900, it's finally time to build. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Digging a subway tunnel in Manhattan is extremely difficult. 
The island is situated on a slab of very hard bedrock. You have to say it carefully. It's called Manhattan Schist. This layer of schist is closer to the surface in some places and further down in others. So the engineer Parsons decides that for some sections, he won't dig into the bedrock at all. He'll stay above it, build the subway right under the road. Of course, Parsons isn't the one actually digging. Most of this labor is done by African-American and immigrant workers. The crazy thing about the construction of the original subway line is that it was, it was done mostly by hand. Like pickaxes, shovels, mules, horses, carts. And that's it. A lot of the sort of lowest of the low work went to a recently arrived Italian immigrants, and they were called picanieri. And a picanieri literally translates to a pickaxe man. So you know what they did? They took their pickaxes and they broke rocks. Tunneling by hand was done especially for parts of the subway that are right underneath the road. It's called the cut and cover method. Basically, the road is cut out, the track is built underneath, and then the road is put back on top. So what I like to tell people when you're visiting New York is you actually know which subway stations are cut and cover because you can hear the train coming. It's actually quite close to the surface on the cut and cover stations. Entire city blocks are ripped up. Stores are temporarily put out of business. Horse omnibus lines are rerouted. Ironically, one of the main challenges came as a result of the Great Blizzard of 1888 because trains weren't the only thing forced underground. Utility lines, electric lines, gas lines, telephone lines, telegraph lines. And all of these lines had to be moved out of the way. These construction sites were a total mess. Things would fall in. Carts would fall in, mules would fall in. John Morris has a photograph from one of these scenes in his book. One that people always stop at when they're flipping through the book is a horse that's hanging over the side of a construction pit and it's hung by its harnesses. The work was dangerous, and there were very few worker protection laws. One of the most infamous foremen on this project was Major Ira A. Shaler. Under his watch, on January 28, 1902, a candle was left lit in a wooden shed filled with dynamite on 41st Street and Park Avenue. And that was such a violent explosion, it blew out the facade of a fancy hotel that looked out on the construction site. It damaged the facade of the original Grand Central Station, killed a number of people, including workers in the hotel. Six people were killed and 125 injured. Shaler was indicted for manslaughter, but his run would continue. Two months later, a tunnel collapsed on his watch. And three months later, Shaler was giving a tunnel tour to his boss, Parsons, the chief engineer. Parsons and Shaler and uh, some of their associates are under wooden scaffolding. Parsons points to a boulder in the ceiling, tells Shaler that it doesn't look stable. Shaler disagrees with him. He steps out from beneath the scaffolding. The boulder falls and breaks Shaler's neck. He dies 10 days later in the hospital. There were areas in Manhattan, particularly in Upper Manhattan, where the schist was very close to the surface. So cut and cover didn't work. Instead, laborers have to blast and tunnel their way through the bedrock. It's dangerous. It's disruptive. But New Yorkers are also watching the subway construction with anticipation. 
with excitement. A very potent mix of, you got to be kidding me. This is like ruining my life. When is this going to be over? I'm so excited for when it's finished. And when it opens, oh my God, my life is so materially better. On October 27th, 1904, the subway is finally ready. Many New Yorkers take the day off. There are church bells ringing. There are fireboats shooting up plumes of water in the harbor. Fireworks went off all over the city. Uh, the New York Times said this was, you know, this was like an election day or Fourth of July fireworks. The opening ceremony is held at City Hall Station, which is gorgeous. Skylights, stained glass tile, brass chandeliers. Mayor George McClellan is set to kick off the first subway ride. Mayor McClellan is given a Tiffany silver handle control to like just sort of ceremoniously drive the train out of City Hall Station. It's just supposed to be a demonstration. McClellan isn't qualified to drive the train any real distance. But nevertheless, he takes it all 9.1 miles. At one point, he accidentally hits the emergency brake, sending the dignitaries aboard flying. But he recovers. And that evening, the subway officially opens to the public. From 7 p.m. that night till midnight, 100,000 people showed up to try the subway. Some people are so nervous that they just stand on the platform and gawk. They don't get on one of the trains. That Sunday, when more New Yorkers are off work, nearly a million people show up to ride the new train. It was said that the lines to enter the subway reached several blocks and fistfights broke out. And of course, the easy joke I made in the book and I will make here is imagine people fighting to get in the subway today. But some things are true then as now. There are 422 subway stations right now, right? You could go four stops or you could go 422 stops. You will pay one fare. And that has been the same since 1904. Back then, it cost a nickel. And as it is now, it was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The subway was a technological marvel. It wasn't the first, but no city had built an underground electrified train on anything close to the same scale. This is a jewel that speaks to New York City's and America's advancement into the 20th century. People at the time talk about New York and how it will, you know, one day be the greatest city in the world. You have to remember, New York wasn't the center of the universe as New Yorkers today think it is. But the subway helps catapult New York City to a new level of fame and importance in the world. By creating mass transit access to Times Square, the subway helps spark the Broadway theater district. Neighborhoods like Harlem in Upper Manhattan and Flushing in Queens grow in large part because of the subway lines that serve those areas. The New York Yankees, also known as the Bronx Bombers, could never have been in the Bronx if not for the 161st Street station that still serves Yankee Stadium today. By 1925, the subway had helped make New York City the most populated city in the world. One of the main reasons the subway was built in the first place was to endure brutal weather conditions, like the Great Blizzard of 1888. And Conchetta Bensavanga told us, for a long time, it has worked just how it was supposed to. 
So long as it was underground, the trees would run. It's brilliant. The response to weather events is just really, it's really unparalleled, you know, and, and the, something that the city should be very proud of. But because of climate change, extreme weather is only getting worse. And the subway is threatened. The city has started to add Kevlar gates that can make station entrances watertight, or massive balloons that can seal off a tunnel in case of floods. It's been over a century since the Great Blizzard of 1888. The storms have only multiplied and gotten worse. But the subway keeps running. It keeps evolving, just like the city it helped create. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks today to our guests, Conchetta Bensavenga, director of the New York City Transit Museum, John Morris, author of Subway, The Curiosities, Secrets, and Unofficial History of the New York City Transit System, and Clifton Hood, professor of history at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and author of 722 Miles, The Building of the Subways and How They Transformed New York. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein, sound designed by Brian Flood, and story edited by Roxandra Guidi. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn and Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.